This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Jim. Hello, I'm Brian Alexander. And I'm Mr. Red. It's Wayne June. Hi. <laughs> Great. Already had it's needed. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to talk about The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, the most famous, perhaps, of H.P. Lovecraft's stories. First published in Weird Tales, February 1928. Um, is it the best, or is it just the most famous? Mr. Jim Moon, what do you think? Um, it's certainly a contender for the best. Uh, I know one of his biographers say it's the first of his great text. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle Hulebeck, I think. That's right, yes, yes. Mm. I mean, it's probably the most influential, I think, because this is the one that... Yeah. It's got all the things people associate with Lovecraft actually in this one. <laughs> Whereas a lot of Lovecraft stories, people are going, hang on, where's the deep ones? Where, where's Cthulhu? Where's the Necronomicon? Well, here, you've got it all in spades. Mm-hmm. Uh, you even have Dream, which, you know, is sort of his other big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. And you have Madness. And, of course, you've got to have Insanity. Um, I, know, I, I thought I hadn't read this story before, but I actually had. Um, I think that's probably a sign of me thinking it's not his best. Um, but I can I kind of see why it is so iconic. Um, but I notice that it mostly – there's almost – there's a lot of action in it, but there's almost none of it is done by – none of it is done on screen. Mm. It's all off screen. It's all – It's all like, Yeah, if you, if you see the adaptations, right, they have to frame it with a guy looking at – reading newspaper clippings and, you know, flipping through journals. And um, and then if you look at the game itself, the game called The Call of Cthulhu, like I, which I've never played, but I've heard a lot about. I, I've, read I, the, I've read it. I've gamed and GM'd it. Mm-hmm. Me too. And Jim, oh, have you done it as well, Jim? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> okay, a large so, shelf of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu <laughs> I books. I have a feeling. <laughs> um, I was looking through it, and one of the things, you know, like, that's different about the character sheets um, and that sort of thing is that, you know, library library skills is like a high value thing to have. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, Instead yeah. of like, you know, swordsmanship <laughs> or horseback riding, right? Right. Well, and it's, so, uh, it, it really works. So this is, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, I've, I've read this, I can't think how many times. And uh, I, I was struck by your point, Jesse, that uh, this is really a, a story about research. Yeah, it reminded me of um, there's a recent American movie called Spotlight, um, which is entirely about people doing research and you know in libraries and archives and interviewing people, and that's that's all this is. It's a it's a kind of it's almost an anthology of stories, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. the the action is a guy traveling around looking for pieces of them. Yeah, or it's nested stories, right? So at the center is that action adventure pirate sort of. Uh, kill them, kill them all, sort of battle on that ship. And then, you know, the they continue on to the mysterious destination. And then behind that is his, um, his great uncle's investigations over like 20 years. Um, sort of, because 
the 1908, uh, you know, the Cthulhu cult in Louisiana uh, intersects. And it's all, it is like this, you can see, this is sort of the origin for what they call the murder maps that people have uh, in TV shows especially, right? Where Mm -hmm. they have, uh, you know, some guy's headshot and then connected to some point on the city map with a red string. Yeah, except except the people, it's not like clues of like who was involved. It's like clues of like someone is researching this, who was researching this, who was researching this and like putting together all their clues. It's a, almost a Borgesian in its depths, right? Mm-hmm. It's also a bit Indiana Jones. It's the red line going across the sure. map as the adventure <laughs> right. unfolds from a right. continent yeah. to continent. That's in the film, right? Yeah, um, yeah. They've, they've got that uh, that nineteen twenties, thirties style. Um, it's a uh, yeah. It's a weirdly deferred story, um, and in many ways, it has that classic Lovecraftian um, uh, call to action, which is. Please don't repeat this story. Right. (laughs) Burn it. Burn it all. The call to inaction. (laughs) Yeah. Cthulhu tells you to hang up. I mean, it's uh, it's it's like it's like mountains of madness. I mean, it's it's all about uh, the opposition to knowledge. Um, So, well, that that's that's right in the the opening, which I think is fabulous. Where is that Algernon Blackwood quote from? Is that from The Willows? No, Um, it's. Quickly, Google and tabs open. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to read it because I think it's um, it's terrific. So this is one of the few things that isn't presumably written by our main uh, character, uh, the late Francis Whalen Thurston. Right? He is the late because he's been killed, mm-hmm. right, by Cthulhu cultists, and then they. F- Apparently, the Cthulhu cultists, like, they had two orders, which was kill Francis Whalen Thurston um, and and also uh, get his statue, Cthulhu statues back. But don't worry about all the papers and research he's assembled. You know, like, they left that behind and then uh, presumably H.P. Lovecraft just found this chest and uh, published it. <laughs> it's the idea, right? We're getting all this, mm-hmm. this text. And he, the only thing that's framed... Um, is it, it, that frames the whole thing is the Algernon Blackwood quote, which I want to read, and then I, I want to get into other quotes in, within it. Yeah. Of such great powers of, or beings, there may be, be conceivably a survival. So this is right in the middle of something, of such great powers, right? A survival of a hugely remote period when consci- consciousness was manifested, perhaps in shapes and forms, long since withdrawn, before the tide of advancing humanity. So this this could be dinosaurs, right? Could be uh, dinosaur men or Silurians, if you're a Doctor Who fan. Mm. Um, from, and then there's a, an ellipsis there, and it says, forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Um, and that... I've been reading or listening to a lot of that uh, guy named um, oh geez now I can't I forgot his name he's uh, Peterson I think is his name at University of Toronto I, I think I sent oh, you Jordan yeah Jordan, Jordan Peterson, Peterson. Yeah, yeah that was great that thing that you sent isn't that really interesting yes he he's just like he's doing something I've not seen anybody else do and he's sort of caught in the middle of a 
whole a whole deal. But when he talks about uh, the bo- earliest Bible stories, I get a sense of like, huh, this is not what they're talking about when they're in church, right? This is much deeper. And, you know, he's talking about uh, how the Garden of Eden story is about consciousness and how um, man was made conscious by woman. And he blames her for it. But also that all of our reaction to gods and great the universe is as a result of this. It, it's very um, Lovecraftian in a certain sense. Mm. That you've got these really, really old texts that if you look at them in the wrong way, you think of them as um, you know, stories written by God. But rather, they are just so important because they are so wise. Yeah. And I thought that that was really interesting. And thinking about what Lovecraft does in creating a new pantheon, right? He wipes away, you know, the ghosts and the goblins and the unicorns and all the traditional stuff. and comes up with his own and does basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's kind of what this story's about. And maybe that's why it's so powerful. Well, well I found he- it. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, was he explicitly trying to start a new pantheon, or was it that he has this story and then things just to create around it afterwards, especially with the Lovecraft, non-Lovecraft, Lovecraft stories that came afterwards? I wonder if this is more like a, that grain in the sand in the oyster that has grown into the Cthulhu mythos. I don't know if Lovecraft explicitly set out to create a mythos or a pantheon but that's what we got out of this story mm-hmm. plus well, I, plush animals i i would just say that, <laughs> like <a> plush animals <laughs> oh I, well, I would just say the um the i i wouldn't say like all the separate stories i mean i was making connections obviously uh, brian you pointed to that dagon war of the worlds um uh, audio drama which connects up a whole bunch of different stories. There it is. And I mean, Dagon. this is this is Dagon is sort of revisited, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his earliest stories. But I, I'm just thinking, like, even within this story, just not trying to connect all the stories together, but just within this story, um, we get the sense that there's this religion that's spread all over the world. It comes to us through dream, right? Um, you form your great artists in your society form a um, little statuette or something and then you start pagan sacrificing to it yeah I think you're right Jesse that I think he started to um, create this pantheon but I feel like something in him when he wrote this story is touching on he, it's like an atheist kind of version of religion of this kind yeah. of like this grand indifference to us and he's putting it into a it's like he's taken that kind of like complete mm. indifference and put it into this creature and the yeah, story. I, I, I think you're right on that. Matter of fact, I kind of get that impression from uh, right from the Algernon Blackwood uh, paragraph there. Um, mm. He sort of comes in on the middle, in the middle of a thought of such great powers, uh, supposedly or allegedly he was just, that's what he was just speaking about. But there may conceivably be a survival um, from a hugely remote period Uh and where he mentions consciousness, he says consciousness was manifested in shapes 
and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity. And eventually, poetry and legend caught a glimpse of those and thereby created our gods and our monsters and mythical beings and mm-hmm. etc. But uh, uh, atheistic in a way, uh, in that it's explaining away the existence of religion by saying, um, you know, uh, these, these were, were myths that have developed based on something that was here long before humanity, you know, yeah. And, yeah. but not necessarily, you know, your big buddy in the sky. Yes. Well, I have to, I have to agree, um, that this is, uh, I mean, I've, I've always been, uh, nervous about the, uh, the derelict model, you know, of trying to stitch these together into a coherent mythos, um, well, well I, I, I want to agree with, I'm not sure who said this, um, I think it was Marissa, that this is, this is actually very frightening, um, and it's, it's, it's of a, con- of a piece of contemporary efforts. Uh, I remember this is, this is the time when you have a bunch of scholars trying to knit together all of human folklore and myth. When you've right. got the Golden Bough from Fraser uh, coming up, you've got Robert Graves doing The White Goddess. You have people doing this with history, like Spengler and, and Toynbee. Uh, there's this, and you know, later on, you get jokers like Joseph Campbell doing, you know, doing the same kind of thing. I, it's and what what Lovecraft is doing is he's following those lines, but he's instead of showing you a nice heroic myth that Hollywood can copy, like Campbell, or um, uh, a, a universal monomyth that people should be inspired by, like Graves. Instead, he's trying to show you something absolutely horrible. Uh, <laughs> I just found the the. Blackwood quote. It's from a Blackwood mm-hmm. novel I haven't read. I'm sorry to say, called the the Centaur, and that mm-hmm. quote actually sounds a little more positive because the great powers or beings that may survive is the being of Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a kind of you know Gaia myth, um, but for Lovecraft instead, it is as you say, Marissa. It's it's a uh, uh, it's materialist. Uh, mm-hmm. So these ancient and horrible things, and in classic Lovecraft style, our, our best bet is for them to not paying attention to us. Uh, and then I guess it follows all the patterns of, of the myth finders. You know, we see this in Eskimo legend. We see this in, um, uh, voodoo. So you got that mix of Caribbean, African, and Southeast American culture. Um, you know, you've got it appearing in, uh, in the South Pacific. And then, then we cross over into horror and surrealism where it's appearing in dreams and the dreams are vivid and real and change people. Uh, I, I, I think that's, I think it's Lovecraft writing about the scary potential of such a myth rather than trying to create his own myth. Mm-hmm. And, and how that myth can uh, infect the world. Um, it reminds me, you mentioned earlier, Jesse, about uh, Borges. It reminds me of the, uh, the Borges story, Talan Ukar Orbis Teratus, where you have a, yeah where you have a book that basically starts to infect the world and rewrite the world to the strange strictures inside of it. And this myth that Lovecraft presents is a myth that, I mean, I mean, it's inevitable. Lovecraft says eventually Cthulhu is, I mean, yes, Cthulhu got rammed by the ship, but eventually Cthulhu and the great old ones will return. It is, it, it is a nihilistic inevitability. You can only, at best, stave it off. You can't ever stop it, and that's a very unflinching and very cold look at the cosmos. And I think that's why 
and, and for for many people, and in the modern age, Cthulhu's edges have been sanded off, and we get plushy Cthulhu because yeah. Cthulhu, as depicted here, who wants that? <laughs> <laughs> well, in facing our fears, we we become less afraid, right? And I mean, oh, we go uh, mad. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I guess, yeah. Well, that's um, the, the deal offered by Cthulhu is is you degenerate and worship him or go mad. That's your that's your right. they're your choices. <laughs> but the uh, but the degeneration actually sounds pretty good uh, this time. I was surprised. There's um, you know, rereading this uh, again for the nth time. Uh, there's the uh, there's Castro's story, and right. uh, I was. I was struck by it. It really sounded like something from uh, uh, a fantasy novel or a new weird uh, story when he's mm-hmm. talking about the uh, the benefits, the wonderful things you can expect under your Lord Cthulhu. Um, and he talks about uh, this world of savage enjoyment and chaos. Right. That's uh, that sounds awesome. You know, just a great <laughs> a great time for all. Uh, a, a wonderful time of uh, of depravity. And I, I was—it was almost—it was almost like a Robert E. Howard moment. Uh-huh. Do you guys know the part I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that, that was, um, and for me, that linked up with the finale because, with a lot of Lovecraft, you know, the best—the best, the most heroic thing you can do is either go insane or die or run away, um, or maybe chant a spell and get something done. But instead, the end, we have this unbelievably ballsy thing of this one, you know, Norwegian cap, you know, sailor, not even the captain, driving his ship right into Cthulhu's guts. My God, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't think of a more macho act anywhere in love. <laughs> it's pretty good. It shows up well in the film, which um, uh, everybody get a chance to see. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. That was great. That's that's the first time I, I've uh, uh, been exposed to uh that particular uh project and man i thought they did a great job it is pretty darn good isn't it yeah. um uh, i like i like that we get to do a lot of lip reading so we know exactly what they're saying and you know it never shows up in the title cards yeah um but uh i think the visualization uh especially with that sort of uh i don't know east german expressionism sort of well, maybe it's not East German. It's just German, German expressionism. expressionism. <laughs> East German expressionism is a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> German expressionism sort of uh, sets and um, uh, the way it's done is just brilliant. I mean, it it it's the best silent film I've seen of of that kind, and it's you know it's yeah, modern. It's it, it, it's a pretty pretty darn good. Uh, uh, interpretation of 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 Lovecraft's work, you know, of being faithful to it. Uh, it's obvious that it was, you know, done on a microscopic budget, and mm-hmm. that kind of just uh, uh, adds to it. You know, the fact that mm-hmm. they they, uh, they <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, there've been there've been uh, productions of Lovecraft's uh, work or interpretations of them, films and stuff done that. Uh, you know, nobody's really been faithful to him. I mean, these these guys did, did a pretty good yep. job. They did, and uh, uh, you know, the microscopic budget for me is is it, it's 
it's mostly in the shots of that aren't the epic ones. It's the you know you see the cars on the street and there's like two of them, right? The old cars, yeah. or um, you know the house is sort of it's furnished in 1920 style, but it it's not quite as full as you would hope it would be. Yeah, <laughs> with, with set decoration, right? So um, they saved all the money for the uh, I, I don't know how they did it, but the sets uh, of the Cthulhu Dagon Land. Yeah, the island. Oh, uh, the Isle of Paradise was that the joke, right? Uh, um, and uh, I want to I want to go back to your point, uh, Brian. I didn't think about this before, but Castro's story, in which he goes to like Tibet or something, right? He and he goes to China, and he 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 travels all. He, he did the exact same thing as everyone else in this story, except he he was he he turned evil, right? Yeah. He he was he was. Uh, you know, a world traveling um, monster <laughs> in the same way that our hero is a world traveling hero, right? Well, it's <laughs> like uh, he's like uh, the shadow. You know, he goes to the uh, he goes to uh, the Far East, learns mystic knowledge, but he comes back and he becomes a psychopathic monster right, instead right. of a you know semi sociopathic hero. Right or Batman, right? Yeah, Al <laughs> Ghul, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Sp- speaking of Castro, something I I noticed this time I didn't notice on previous uh, consumings of the story is that there's at least one unexplored thread, and I, I want to that Castro mentions. He says, "I want to read this." Um, the size of the old ones too. He curiously declined to mention of the cult. He said he thought the center lay amid the pathless deserts of Arabia, where Iram, the city of pillars, dreams yeah. hidden and untouched. And we don't ever go there. We don't ever. He, I mean, we have a world traveling guy that goes from the United States to New Zealand to Norway and back in, but he never actually goes pulls on that thread. It's an unexplored future possibility of what the cult's doing in the Middle East, and it just helps show the world is larger than even the story. The story itself uh, gives us. There's the cult is everywhere, and we don't get to see every place the cult is doing its evil business mm-hmm. that reminds me of the nameless city that story though yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah is that is that the same name do we know it's it if it's not it's it's virtually the same thing isn't it i think this the, the city of pillars is an old uh arabic myth um right see that, that 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 lovecraft is just uh appropriating so it's not the nameless city okay um there, there is a because um, it's in the Quran. Actually, it's actually mentioned. The oh, right, it's actually mentioned right. in the Quran. Sure. It's like city of poles or something like that. Yeah, there's, there's Iran a, who had lofty pillars. So there's also um, there's a, a terrific uh, Robert E. Howard story called "The Fire of Ashurbanipal," which is set in a city of that kind, right? And it's got a Lovecraftian monster. Um, it, it, it there's actually two versions of the story. One is straight up adventure and the other is you know a weird adventure and um the weird adventure one has a tentacled monster um uh if you tr- if you touch the jewel of ashurbanipal which is like a, f- a fire jewel or something that's like that so yeah you can see uh i mean this is mercy you've never played the game either have you no i uh, haven't I saw uh, Scott was playing a sort of a version of it with uh, his family over Christmas, which I thought was awesome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the the card version. Um, hmm. uh, and um, <laughs> I just think that it's, it's it, 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 was it, uh, who, who mentioned the, somebody mentioned the, 
the books. Oh yeah, it's Paul. In fact, the books infecting the world, right? Yeah, and consuming, changing, and consuming the world. Um, you know, the Communist Manifesto, I guess, is a, a book like that, or um, mm-hmm. uh, the books of um, Darwin and uh, um, I was going to say Asimov, but that's not the right guy. Isaac Newton, just <laughs> 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 slightly different guy. Yeah, uh, Principia Math- Mathematica, right? Um, these are books that infect the world and and change reality because for most people reality is sort of social reality. Right. Um, and this this is a this is a short story that's done exactly the same thing. Uh, people are it's a thing now, right? Where you become an investigator and try and stave off uh, the destruction of the world by uh, a cult determined to destroy it or uh, release release the kraken as it were right mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a fun sort of um starting place and uh i yeah i was not super into it until i started thinking about it sort of in its meta context and how meta it is um because it is so um so much like the cthulhu call of cthulhu role-playing game that's it's basically the model for it, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. You can mo- you model adventures on this. You go traveling world. You go looking in libraries. You try to visit sit- some guy in Norway, and his, he's dead, and talk to his wife. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, no. No. It, 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 it's clearly the the template for how to run a, a scenario. I've right. used it. Yep. No. It, Did you stave off the destruction of the world? Well, I was the GM. The players. Did stop uh, the door from opening. So yes, they 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 stayed. They, although one of them did well, kind of go gibbering. But you know, that, <laughs> that, that's the feature of the role play. The role playing game. There's a there's a stat called sanity, and when you, you when your sanity gets too low, yeah, you lose it. I mean, unlike like say Dungeons and Dragons, where your characters are getting more and more powerful, getting more stats. In Call of Cthulhu, your characters are generally just trying just getting eroded down towards madness they don't i mean they're getting some more skills but generally it's really a degradation that the characters yeah. go with them. so this it, sounds it, like um darkest dungeon as well dark yeah, dark darkest clear. dungeon has taken a lot from call of cthulhu to tell you yeah well one of the great yeah. things is um the more intelligent you are the more at risk you are of losing your sanity yes <laughs> because, you know, you, which is you, you, you see something and you think oh if you're a bonehead, you're, oh, I don't know what that is. But if you're, you know, <laughs> exotic Semitic languages at uh, Princeton, you think, oh, no, that's actually a sign of the, ah, and, you know, go. <laughs> really, These really, are non-Euclidean <laughs> angles. Oh, my God. We, we, a, a few players that I was uh, jamming once called was taking sanity point that you had to put the, uh, the least intelligent character ahead of the group. <laughs> so they could say, hey, look, I found a big severed head. No, 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 it's okay, Fred. Don't freak out. You know, it was a... <laughs> Um, I, in, <laughs> I was delighted when I found that, uh, table 4B insanity table <laughs> from the, uh, original Call of Cthulhu. Oh yeah. That's very sweet. Is, is Darkest Dungeon the computer game? Yeah. It's the yes. one that J- when Mr. June does, uh, the narration for. Oh no. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. it's a, uh, it's a consciously, uh, constructed and, uh, Envisioned to be uh, sort of a, a tribute to uh, to H.P. Lovecraft. All the, um, the the script is all written in you know sort of in uh, 
in his style, if you will. Yep. And it's got his kind of monsters. And uh, it's a fun game. Uh, from what I've seen, I hesitate to play it because it looks really difficult. It, it, <laughs> it is it is hard as hell. It, I mean, it, yeah. It is very hard. Yeah. It's fun. I played, but, yeah, I played I a lot. I really enjoy it. And uh, it's oh. it's all that it's all about the sanity. Like one, it's a different strategy to every other game I've played where as long as you're looking after your character's sanity, it's, you can do it. <laughs> don't forget to buy lots of torches as well. Yeah, because, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, don't, you, you don't want insane people stumbling around in the dark. If you get scotophobia, fear of darkness, um, <laughs> you will be. What, what, nice what was the, what was the phobia that, uh, that you claimed to have Jesse, where you, oh, where you've, you're afraid you're going to have, float up into the air or something. I used to have, yeah, similar ones to that. Uh, barophobia, which is the fear of loss of gravity. What? <laughs> and yeah. so you, uh, I love the descriptions for these. It says, you know that you will fall off the world into the sky. Hold <laughs> onto something every minute. Be sure that what you hold onto is bolted to the earth. Walk cautiously. Yeah, don't take it with you. <laughs> so when I, when I GM this, um, I would uh, I would insist on only telling the player afflicted about their um, disorder, but not the other players. Right. Um, oh yeah, so yeah. That's the way to do it. They'd have to act it out, and uh, and what was great was I, I would freak out the other players so much that they couldn't tell which one of them had been temporarily insane. <laughs> so they would smile Jim I, I had no idea you narrated this I'm I'm. as soon as we're done with this I'm going to put my poor bandwidth to the test and download the game to my Steam client it sounds great it's, it's Wayne not Jim oh I'm sorry I thought you said Jim it, no, no Wayne. it's Wayne June Wayne June Wayne June's the narrator of Darkest Dungeon very famously See, he's, he's we are now in this kind of uh, um, you know poetic moment where we have Jim Moon, Wayne June. <laughs> it's true. It's the Aslings that's strong with us, brothers and sisters. It is. <laughs> the stars are aligning. Oh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I I I wanted to ask who who else when you're reading this list of phobias. Um, did you have one like as a kid? There was one I used to play with my. Brother and sister. Oh, not my brother and sister. I only have a sister, so I don't know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> I used to play with my sister. And, Reality you know, is slipping already. Yeah, mm -hmm. basically. Um, I, I play with my sister and, you know, like family friends. Um, the one where the the floor is lava. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Played that. I still play that with my, my little niece. That's her big favorite at the minute. Yeah. <laughs> so you can only walk on the on the couch or you mm. throw a pillow down and right. you can float on that for a while or you sacrifice a sibling you throw them down and you walk oh them. i never <laughs> thought of that brilliant yes. brilliant yeah. see so you like you're on the couch and you need a snack so you say we need to get to the kitchen right and then you throw some pillows down and it's a sort of cooperative game it's kind of the opposite of a of a phobia i guess but it it, it there's something about the the play of children that I think continues into into role playing games. It's like it's crazy if you like LARPing seems like one step beyond for me. Right? You know, it's like running around a hotel pretending that you're a vampire or whatever, and it's just too much. Um, but I, you know, sitting around a table playing uh, uh, a role playing game with because you you have a, a dice and stuff. It, it's more legit. But as kids, you don't need any of that. Um, and it, as readers, also, uh, you don't need any of that. And reading this story, you just go with it, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't. I, I. I mean, 
I don't know how anybody who'd never read a Lovecraft story before and started with this one could just go with it, but I totally went with it. Well, it kind of helps that the first narrator you get, it's very skeptical, you know, and he's he's really skeptical of all the information he's getting, so it, it kind of, like, draws you in that way because bit by bit as the, as the clues come together, mm-hmm. you're sort of puzzling it out with him. Yep. That's true. You're falling into the into the inevitable madness with our with our first narrator yeah, slowly. So yeah, so yeah, slowly. That's very, yeah. So yeah, so he's he's kind of like an entry point, and that's a good point, Marissa. Is this if this is not the first story you should read of Lovecraft? It's probably it's one you should read, but it's not the first one you should read. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend this as the first story to anybody. Yeah, because it's it's. It's so different. I mean, it's so uh, maybe wide in scope rather than narrow. Uh, that's why I like the tomb or, you know, it's just one crazy guy. Right. Or even Dagon, which is, you know, it's the same story, except uh, sort of narrow. And um, it, it sort of even has the same structure and all that. Right. It's it's um, it's pretty terrific. Um, but this one is so, so wide and globe trotting and. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I. I don't. I still don't know where to rank it. I. I don't know how to think about it. But there are so many good things in it, and I want to talk about some of the. If anybody's chosen some awesome lines, I, I just think that the opening is terrific, that, and I want to analyze oh, it a little. The opening bit. is brutal. Oh, oh my, it's so good. The, the, the first paragraph is like wham. Yeah. Oh, so somebody should read it, Wayne. Wayne, Wayne, Wayne. have you got it at hand? Uh, yeah. Let me pull it up. Where do you? What do you want? The first paragraph. Uh, first paragraph, right under the horror and clay. Dance for us, Wayne. Dance. <laughs> Pull the string. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. Okay. So, first of all, that was beautiful. Thank you. So yes. great. Right? Thank you very much. But then also, I love the uh, the brutal cynicism of that last line: the peace and safety of a new dark age. Yeah. Uh, there's that real darkness of Lovecraft. Yeah, he he just he he just totally resonates with me. <laughs> he's yeah. uh, he's he's so. Uh, 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 I don't know. Uh, just so, just so negative and so accepting <laughs> of the negativity of existence that uh, just rings a bell with me. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the first line because I, I, I think it, it's really interesting and it makes us think about like who's writing this, what does he mean by it? The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. So. The very first thing I think of when I think of that sentence is what they call cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Where you you have 
some ideas in your head that are in conflict with each other, but you perhaps don't know notice. So if I had what you're saying right now, if I were being as hypocritical as you right now, I would have cognitive dissonance, right, or mm-hmm. whatever. I don't know. Yeah, and he, he, like he sort of he sort of says that. Um, that that that's actually a merciful thing, uh, rather than right. rather than cog- rather than dissonance, which is uncomfortable, right. uh, because you can't uh, you can't put put these ideas together comfortably. Uh, rather than the dissonance, it's merciful because, uh, as Brian was saying before, you know, if if you if you're a dimwit, you you, you probably won't won't see the won't see the train of Cthulhu coming down the track at you. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the train of, uh, that's the, that's the thing. Like if I, I didn't do, it, and I was thinking about doing it, but I also was afraid of the results. Maybe I didn't, that's why I didn't do it. I, I was thinking about if we did a word, uh, word cloud for this story, what things would come up and death is clearly one of them. Right. So, uh, one of the things that, that Jordan Peterson, uh, psychology prof at the U of T is always talking about is, is, you know, we have, because we have consciousness, we have fear of death. That's the only, uh, we're the only animal that we know has fear of death. Um, and we either dance away from it or dance towards it. Um, and really, it's sort of on all our minds, as long as we have minds. And that's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. That guy died. I'm a guy. Therefore, right? Yeah, um, it's, don't think about it. It's sort it. of right there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. there's that thing of getting, we all know we're going to die, but as you get older, you always have that thing of going, kind of, oh, I'm getting gray hair. How did that happen? Yep. <laughs> you know, and you, you know full well how it happened, but because you don't correlate the contents mm-hmm. of your own mind, you, mm-hmm. you, you spare yourself just, you know, looking down that particularly dark, inevitable gun barrel. Yeah, I do that sometimes. <laughs> I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, God, I look tired today. And then I'm like, oh, no, I actually just look old. <laughs> I'm just the opposite. I go by a mirror and I'm like, ho! Looking <laughs> <laughs> great. Hot, man. Damn. Getting younger. <laughs> or you don't think, whoa, I'm still vertical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lot of times, so. Well, there you go. <laughs> I, I think... Um, I think the the first sentence is a killer, and that first paragraph is, um, in many ways, one of Lovecraft's hardest ones. It, it reminds me of, um, you know, you can see his Chouvert's to Poe in this. You know, it's like the beginning of Casca of Amontillado, right, which, which you know, sets up this abstract principle uh, rather than getting the story. Um, and it's it's hard. It, it also, you know, he has a weird genre position because um, he's writing science fiction and fantasy and horror at the same time. And this this opening paragraph is almost hard science. Oh yeah, I mean, he's talking about cognitive structures right away, which is a, a terrible way to hook a reader. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds great though. Oh, so this, they don't know what it means, but they're like, "Damn, this sounds good." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it it's you know, if we want to think about um, skepticism, which we we're talking about a few minutes ago, this this really helps set that up. Um, it also just reminds me of one of my favorite, favorite passages in all of 18th century poetry. Um, in Alexander Pope's essay on men, he has this great uh, stanza where he talks about how awesome it is that humans are limited, that we really aren't that great. Um, 
you know, he says, uh, say what the use were finer optics given to inspect a mite, not to comprehend the heaven or touch if tremblingly alive all over to smart and agonize at every pore or quick effluvia darting through the brain. Humans would die of a rose in aromatic pain. Mm. <laughs> it's a, it's a fantastic mm. poem. Uh, actually coil sampled this in a really great song back in the late eighties. Um, but it's, it's that, I guess, you know, we, ha- we have Wayne, this is that sense of um, a darkness about humanity, a very pessimistic view that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and here Pope's trying to flip it. Well, it's a good thing. And, and Lovecraft's doing the same thing. If we were any smarter, we'd be doomed. Um, yeah. Again, this is a really bizarre way to, to attract a reader from the first paragraph. Dear reader, you're a moron. Be happy. I mean, <laughs> oh, <laughs> ignorance um, is bliss. Yeah. Well, it, well I, I hate to bring him up again, but every time I get into a discussion about this kind of stuff, I have to bring up Thomas Ligotti. He's uh, uh, for, for those not familiar, he's a um, you know a, a a horror writer, but he also wrote a pretty darn serious philosophical treatise. Um, it's the human race. Yes. Uh, have you read that or read I'm anything? A, I'm a serious Ligotti cultist. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it, that. Uh, that yeah. book kind of epitomizes that view, that materialistic, uh, atheistic view. And he's really got his, a chip on his shoulder about yeah. being in existence and, and realiz- realizing it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he, he, he called consciousness, uh, a curse, you yes. know, because, uh, as Jesse was saying before, there are no other, uh, uh, animals in the kingdom that uh, that that can contemplate their own deaths, that that realize that they exist and that it's a temporary situation, and um, uh, you know he thinks that's a curse, and that that's that's kind of the way um, uh, Lovecraft opens opens the story. You know, the, the most merciful thing in the world is the inability to 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 even think about that stuff, uh, to to be able to understand it. So the, the, the less conscious you are, <laughs> the happier you are because you don't, you don't have to contemplate the horror, which is, uh, the inevitable ending of your existence. Yeah. It's like teaching, uh, Coco, the gorilla to, to sign and, and externalize thoughts and transmit thoughts, um, is like the most unmerciful thing in the world. Absolutely. Because... Yeah. Her puffball of um, a kitten is gonna die, and when she, it does, and she teach Coco teaches her own children uh, the language of sign language. It, the curse is passed on in a in a, a horrible but also kind of beautiful way. The curse of sentience. Yes, there's a. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I'll be really quick. There's a there's a really good novel about AI from the '80s. Um, called Galatea 2.0 by uh, Richard Powers. And it's about creating an AI and testing it out um, by giving it a uh, English PhD qualifying exam. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I saw, uh, uh, and at the end of it, the AI passes. It has become sentient and then kills itself. Um, <laughs> and I, awesome. I, I, I was at a, at a job talk at uh, the Modern Language Association back in the 90s, and they had... Uh, a crowd of you know, thousands of us. We we're all job seekers, and we were all doomed. The the job market was was horrendous. It was a disaster. 
And um, one of the heads of the organization was trying to cheer us up and said, uh, hey, she held up this novel. Isn't this great? It's a sign of how important English is, that that's how we would assess the AI. <laughs> and the 10 of us in the room who had, who had actually read the book, uh, a few started weeping openly. <laughs> and, and, and you could tell the, the woman who was holding this up hadn't actually read the book. She just looked confused and then kind of backed down. It was really sad. I'm sorry, Marissa, please go ahead. Marissa, you, you started to say something. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, when we're talking about this first paragraph, and the, we're kind of assuming that happiness is the value that we would want anyway, mm-hmm. like that it's the merciful thing. But, um, you know, I'm not sure that's entirely true because then I think we would all just be on drugs all the time and just oh. be happy. Like there's something about looking into that chaos and darkness and looking at death that, that makes you feel more alive than happy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even though it hurts, you know? Yeah. So it's not such a mercy. Yeah. Well, I, I well this first from... paragraph reminds me of something actually rather biblical. It is a biblical quote. That he mm-hmm. increases his understanding, increases his sum of suffering. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, is a price know, to pay. Yeah, mm. the more you know, the more you'll suffer. Yeah, <laughs> which is okay. With, you know, that's, sometimes it's okay, I think. Like, it hurts, but it's like, yeah, that's better than just being ignorantly happy and... I mean, for some, some people would rather do that. <laughs> well, that's, that's the Garden of Eden, Eden myth. You, 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 you go from innocence and lack of knowledge to uh, a hard life because you've eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, this, you've left the place that I Yes, well, this is, you can see how this leads people to being very anti-Christian. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. find, finding this to be a, one passage of many in which Christianity exhorts people to be less, uh, less learned. Let's let's move on to the second sentence. <laughs> <laughs> step by story. step. Twenty uh, hours from now, we'll be in page three. <laughs> <laughs> let's do that. I'm very comfortable with the second sentence. Um, I I like to think about this sentence. I think it's one of Lovecraft's best. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. Mm. Is this not him saying? God damn it, Einstein's right. We nobody's can go faster than light. We're stuck in this fucking planet, and we see that the universe is fucking huge and has amazing numbers of stars, ergo, amazing number of planets, ergo, amazing number of other realities, other beings, and we're all separated and never gonna be able to see each other. Isn't that what this is saying? It's a Trump in some way. That's a great translation. Yeah. And and then that to actually try would be would be a bad thing if we break that ignorance because the cure might be worse than the disease, as it were. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's what all the aliens movies tell us, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Colonizing those other planets. Yeah. Not not so good for your guts. No, but I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Charles Strauss's Laundry <laughs> Files novels, which are which have a Lovecraftian universe, and mm. people start. I mean, mathematicians and people accidentally in, insert uh, contacting other universes always goes badly. It's, and it's an inevitability that uh, Earth's going to get consumed by uh, Case Mightnare Green at some point. Well, they worry about that. Um, yeah. Sorry, they, I was just going to say, they worry about that with the city stuff, right? Where people are trying to send out signals into the universe and they're like, if there were actually aliens or anyone out there, like, we probably don't want to know about them. They probably don't want to know about us. Like, yep. <laughs> it's probably safer just like pour a beer, sit on your porch and watch the sunset. Just yeah. 
<laughs> I just no, you're absolutely right. It just reminds me. I just read this uh, this Chinese science fiction novel that got a lot of attention, the Three Body Problem. Oh yes, uh, oh, yeah. And it's about uh, transmissions with an alien world. <laughs> oh, it's so dark because you know we get a we get a scientist who detects the first message, and the first message is "Don't talk to us. We're hateful, <laughs> we're awful." And and the, and the scientist who gets it is a victim of the Chinese Cultural Revolution and incredibly depressed. So she sends a note saying, nah, come get us. It's better off if you conquer us. <laughs> <laughs> so she kicks off a, a religion of, of scientists and their goal is to, is to invite, it sounds very much like a Lovecraftian thing. They're, they're there to invite the aliens because we suck. And, and the aliens would wow. hopefully make us better, preferably by killing a lot of us. <laughs> it's a it's a dark vision. Yeah, oh, man. sounds great. You gotta read this one. <laughs> uh, it's it's really it's making it sound pretty good. Oh yeah, it is. It's, it's a rich book. I was surprised. Um, but this three also goes problem. Through, is that the name of it? The three body three problem. It's a it's the first of a trilogy, appropriately. Um, but it's it stands alone by itself. It's it's a it's a satisfying novel. Um, it, uh, I, I did a quick review of it at Goodreads. It's uh, it got the Hugo during one of the bad Hugo years, but it, it really deserved it. It's really interesting. But I, I I hate to keep beating the 18th century drum, but it's it's one of my things. The this what you're saying recalls uh, Voltaire or Samuel Johnson, who each of them wrote a novel, the conclusion of which was stay home, cultivate your garden, you're better off. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a Lovecraft slacker idea almost. I think this is pretty pretty fruitful, pretty fruitful first sentence, pretty fruitful second sentence. I think the third sentence, which is the conclusion for the paragraph that we're so happy with, is kind of the it's kind of the way I see myself in relationship to science. It's like science is awesome, right? Science is awesome. We're just beginning to bring it all together and get all the stuff working out and all the sciences are pushing off in their directions. Um, but then he has sort of a negative spin on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the sciences, each straining its own, in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. In fact, they've helped us, kind of. But someday, piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light, the deadly light, into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Mm. The first part of this is like, hey, guess what? We are affecting the climate of the earth. Hey, guess what? We're killing off all the animals and all the plants. Hey, guess what? We're all going to die, not just individually, but as a species. And we can't voyage far, right? Oh, man, that's scary. Yeah. And so a lot of people say, stick your head in the sand, right? Burn, baby, burn. Drill, baby, drill. Yeah. It's not only that. Like, you see it with the internet. Like, I remember thinking, like, how exciting Wikipedia and the internet was. Like, people are going to be so smart. The world, Like, everyone's going to learn stuff and be brilliant and calm and talk to each other and then you give people all this information and all this science and we've literally just gone freaking mad <laughs> like <laughs> all the websites like you give people a little bit of science and a little bit of knowledge and the stuff they write it's just crazy mm-hmm. so we are i think going back into that new dark age <laughs> i yeah i i don't know i don't know i don't know what it means 
But I do, I, I think that the next paragraph and the fact that he brings it up a bunch of times, the theosophists, right? This was a thing. Yep. It's gone now, but it was yep. a thing. Who can tell us about the theosophists and what was their problem? <laughs> I bet you Who, Brian knows a, about that. Madame Blavatsky. Yeah. Madame Blavatsky. Yeah, okay. that, was, that, was, that was a good guess. And, and you're right. The, uh, and you can go to New York City where there is still a theosophical bookstore. And I thought a theosophical <laughs> store, tea house, um, you know, they, uh, they were this, you know, to be cruel, they were this hoax religion, you know, made up with lots of stuff. But Madame Blavatsky was the lead, although there's some interesting guys. Um, they did a lot of fun stuff. One thing they, they came up with, they thought they were going to uh, create the next world messiah. So they w- the short story is they went to India, picked out this family and said, your child is going to be the next world messiah. You're welcome. And, uh, and they, they, they basically <laughs> bought this kid, uh, raised him up to be the, uh, the world messiah. And at his coming out party at, at age 18 or so, he said, yeah, uh, I think that's kind of bananas. I'm just going to spend my life <laughs> writing poetry and trying to understand stuff. Uh, um, but there, there's all kinds of great stuff about them. But they, uh, they did have this huge cosmology of uh, you know, multiple planes, multiple worlds. They kept shifting depending on who Blavatsky was talking to or she was writing. Um, and, you know, you would move among these um, depending on how you worked. And, of course, if you sent money, you'd do even better. Um, mm-hmm. But they uh, they were really, you know, pretty elaborate and hugely influential on uh, 20th century New Age stuff. They really, uh, really seeped out. They're, just just for fun, they're contemporaries with the Golden Dawn of Aleister Crowley. Who oh, boy. Hermeticism. Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't stand each other. But it's it's uh, so for him, you know, for Lovecraft to cite these guys makes sense. That's really contemporary. Um, and uh, it, what's what's weird is just for me, it shifts the tone of the story because the first one is at this strong scientific level, and then the second takes us into well, for lack of a better word, new religious movements. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, the first paragraph is science, hard science fiction. Very hard. I mean, you even notice, not to be too pedantic, but that third sentence, by identifying the different branches of sciences, yep. that, that's, that was historically pretty recent. But if you go back a century to Frankenstein, all the sciences are pretty mashed up into one giant puddle of natural philosophy, which is why you don't have Victor saying chemistry or biology or, you know, he, he talks about electricity and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but a century later, under the impact of things like the German invention of the modern research university, you have all the branches out. And people complain about it. This is where you start getting complaints that science is too diverse, people are too specialized, we're losing track of the big picture. Um, I mean, C.P. Snow is great, great speech about the two cultures of sciences and the humanities comes out at this time, um, saying that, you know, we've split apart too far and it's a real problem. So all of that is bound up in that first paragraph. Then we go to the second paragraph. And now we're now we're back in in fantasy and religion. We have theosophists, and then we have what's the uh, the single glimpse of forbidden aeons, which chills me when I think of it and mads me when I dream of it. <laughs> now, now we've now we've really shifted gears, really subtly but very powerfully. That word "dream" shows up fifty-two times in the story. Wow, uh, variations mm-hmm. of it. It is fundamental to what's going on. You know, is driving the plot. And uh, Mr. Jimmoon, I want you to maybe expound upon it because I found it utterly fascinating. The that 
the there's there's some sort of fun little trick going on that I think Lovecraft's winking to us about about Cthulhu himself dead and dreaming, right? Um, he's come to us from the stars. He's lying dead at the bottom of the ocean. He can't move until the stars are right. Um, and Lovecraft is doing something like a little wink, I think, at us with this. There's a line in there somewhere about how uh, the passages in the Necronom have double meaning, right? That's bad enough, the first meeting, right? <laughs> Just reading the yeah. official level drives you insane. <laughs> But wait, there's more. There's a whole, you know, <laughs> subtextual level just to drive things even worse. Man, that, that was shocking. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I'll, I'll read this line here. It was not allied to the European witch cult and was virtually unknown be, beyond its members. No book had ever really hinted of it, though the deathless Chinaman said that there were double meanings in the Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, which the initiated might read as they chose. I'm thinking that's us reading this story as we choose, especially the much discussed couplet. <laughs> of course, we're now going to discuss it. Yep. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. Maybe the most famous quote uh, of Lovecraft's ever. Yep. Mm -hmm. This is like the, mm -hmm. one of the centers of this story and of his mythos. Yeah, it's almost right in the center of the story. Mm -hmm. Mr. Jim Moon, what, what, what are your thoughts here? Uh, well, first thing, if you look how the Necronomicon's treated in this story, I mean, people now have this um, view of the Necronomicon, like it's a huge kind of, you know, the observer's book of eldritch beings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Cthulhu, tentacles, cyclopean, inhabits corpse city, blah, 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 you know what I mean? Deep ones, here's the life cycle, tadpole, human, sailor, deep one. <laughs> All this kind of nonsense. Whereas what Lovecraft is referring to is actually a book that is actually far more like... Um, actual real medieval grimoires uh, we now know that a lot of medieval grimoires were actually about magic they're actually books on stenography and ciphers and all this mystical language <laughs> is actually that's that's you have to crack the code to learn about right. the codes right. and there's quite a few like that dr john d was involved in in a lot of these and you have this strange crossover in the 16th and 17th century of a ritual magic and espionage uh, right. Dr. John D. was signed his letters to Queen Elizabeth I, 007. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. But also then you've got the work of sort of um, <clears throat> uh, famously young and other people who looked at various alchemical texts and said, hang on, th these aren't crazy uh, chemistry experiments. Th this is allegorical. These these sort of match up with Eastern sort of texts like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and they are steps for meditations for expanding your consciousness. Uh, now, the big thing what people, where we get Cthulhu wrong in modern pop culture, we think of him as essentially a, a Marine King Kong, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. whereas <laughs> here he is the high priest of his race. Right. Um, and the old ones, you know, they have shapes that, you know, we don't know. And it's kind of <laughs> Cthulhu's, you know, might be quite low ranking <laughs> for all we know. Um, but the idea is, he says, you know, they were dead or rather they died after their fashion. And right. I think he's drawing a line here of kind of we think of them as dead because we judge everything. We judge our life 
and conscious beings as being like us, things that are biologically alive. These are creatures from not just other planets, they're from other dimensions. They, they live in this, you know, not just the sort of firmament of uh, outer space and you know, this is a truly cosmic vista, you know, a la Einstein and quantum theory, where you've got untold countless dimensions, something Lovecraft would return to in other stories like Dreams in the Witch House. Um, and there's even hints of it in uh, his most sort of like um, conventional sort of alien from outer space story of uh, Whisper in Darkness. And so here you go, the idea of dead but dreaming is he's kind of, yeah, they're just physically dead currently because of the state of our physical universe. However, our physical universe ain't the only game in town. In fact, it's a very small game. And when the big cosmic wheel, you know, turns round and the stars are right, different dimensions will align. And these guys will uh, gain their physicality again, but they're still conscious now, although maybe impossibly distant, maybe completely incomprehensible, except for the most deranged and fanatical. But, you know, dead doesn't apply to these fellows. Physical reality is a, just a bauble. It is a joke in the, in the terms of the cosmos. These are creatures that are of the cosmos and are infinite and eternal. Mm. Boy, I'm really <clears throat> glad I asked you that question. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. You're really great. There, there is so much connection with. I mean, I, I know you guys tweet my. I, I tweet my dreams. Um, mostly they don't make sense. Um, they're fun. Um, this explains a lot but, more about you, Jesse. Yeah. Oh, I, I really like dreams, and I, I mean, I think it's it's fun to think about. Lovecraft is so obsessed by his dreams. Um, I, I was reading a poem the other day, and I'm like, oh, duh, this is a dream that he wrote down. It was called Recapture. And uh, it's it's just a poem about um, like some weird visions, and I'm like, this is on another planet. Except there's there's no there's no air, but there's there is air, and there's plants, and there there's um, water shooting up out of the ground um, with hidden. It's almost like uh, uh, I don't know. There's hidden water passages under the ground, and then atop a lava mountain, there's a terrible beast, and it's a sonnet and it's just him writing down his dream. It, it, there's nothing more to it than that. He's trying to recapture the dream in, in the form of a sonnet. And that the, the translation of, of dream into text is Lovecraft. That is his thing, right? That, that is his genre. Um, and sort of using the mind to rationalize the irrationable. <laughs> <laughs> is kind of his genre. Mm -hmm. So um, when you have a story here in which great artists and uh, poets are the ones who are best attuned to the the transmissions of of Cthulhu, um, it, there's something going right back to you know deleting deleting the old pantheon of gods. This is um, the muse is inspiring. Right, but evil muses, muses inspired by reality about science and what that means. When you go to sleep having read, you know, one of these great works of science that says, you know, we're just biological creatures with no souls that are fucking and eating and then gonna die, and then 
you go to sleep and you think on that, you don't have good dreams. <laughs> you have scary dreams. And they're being transmitted all over the world by these books that people are reading. There's something very um, deep uh, in this story of, for, for exactly that reason. That the the dream dreams around the world don't show up in newspapers, right? But in Lovecraft's world, they do. <laughs> True. Well, they do have ripples in, you know, in the real world that, you know, this is what, you know, our narrator correlates is that the time when the dream signal is strong, you have, you know, outbreaks of violence, suicide, madness. Um, I I think it's very interesting. Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, and even the the physical earth has earthquakes and reacts to the eruption of these dreams. So it says that the earth itself is, is dreaming. Well, so I came across a line, I can't remember what it was recently, where it said kind of humans are so stupid. You think this uh, finite, impermanent universe is the real one, not, not mm-hmm. the cosmic infinity of the, of, the, <laughs> of the quantum world, which is timeless and spaceless. Which one's more real, your transient one or that eternal one? Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what Lovecraft sort of gets at at this, I think. Of, um, I mean, because he was you know, really... He was a keen astronomer, so he was really up on all these sort of, you know, uh, new ideas. And I think kind of he very much was taking the idea of kind of, well, what if there are that kind of continuous inhabited? And then you have this sort of paradox of kind of, well, God isn't real. But when you've got something that is aegis and eternal, well, it's as good as God <laughs> in practical terms. It's like Clark's Law yes. being, you know, advanced yes. magic is it's the same as science. And I think, yeah. you know, with Cthulhu, is postulating a being of kind of well it's not a god but it might as well be a god and i think the, well, the interesting thing i think um in this in the spiel we get from castro is that i always have the sense that this is maybe an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. <laughs> um but it, he has the interesting slant of like unlike a lot of um satanists and cultists you find in well contemporary literature to lovecraft and indeed even in modern modern sort of horror fiction they're not going, ha ha, yes, we're evil, moustache twirl, because we are. <laughs> they think they're doing good. They think they're going to be liberated. You can see the appeal of the cult in Castro's terms. It's all about freedom, guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not about malice or destruction. It's, it's freedom. And it's going to be brilliant. You know, that's, they don't see that's, that's a, a, the, one of the subtle wrinkles that a lot of certain, certainly a lot of other Lovecraftian writers who've uh, run with the mythos rarely picked up on the fact that to the cultist point of view they're not the bad guys right yeah yeah i, I think we should read this the, the, this portion of that paragraph from what castro says because yeah. okay so then whispered castro those first men formed the cult around small idols which the great ones showed them idols brought in dim auras and dip, deep dark stars that cult would never die till the stars came right again and the secret priests would take great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of earth the time would be easy to know but then mankind would become as the great old ones free and wild and beyond good and evil with laws and morals thrown aside and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rights, must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and shadow forth the prophecy of their return. Yeah. Oh, so great. <laughs> Sign me up. 
<laughs> it's the most metal, <laughs> the most metal thing I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it has all these wonderful references because you have the the, the Nietzschean uh, glance of beyond good and evil, and mm-hmm. you've got the the biblical reference. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that's the, we, one of the many bizarre parts of uh, of Genesis one. Right is that mankind will have become as a great old ones. You know, the serpent's argument: you can become like gods. Um, I mean, that's that's got to be deliberate, uh, deliberate link. Um, no, this is, I, I agree, both of you guys, this is, uh, you know, we, we need more stories from the point of view of cultists. <laughs> I'm not just but, saying that because America went for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the classic paradox you have, I think, with uh, men dealing with cults and particularly like evil cults. Like, uh, so you guys are worshipping Satan, um, he's a father of lies, oath breaker, and you think he's going to reward you because <laughs> well, yeah that's 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 a little bit of a problem we go back to the cognitive dissonance that uh jesse mm. began this way but i i jim I, I would i would connect this back to something earlier you said about how our hero is discovering this ancient conspiracy but it's one that's based on physical reality that we have these entombed young old ones uh who are still alive still thinking uh still dreaming I mean, I, for me, this links to, you know, we're coming to the great end of uh, the big period of Western exploration of the world. And this is when we've got, a, what, a generation of stories about hidden civilizations, lost kingdoms, uh, underground kingdoms, uh, you know, even H.G. Right. Uh, Wells' First Man on the Moon is a, is a version of that. Um, what's the, uh, oh, the Bulwer-Lytton book, uh, The Coming Race? Um, yes, yes. Which is fantastic, rich with puns, and oh god, it's terrible. <laughs> I just love it. It's like <laughs> this theater movie. That's why everyone has the Vril staff. My favorite part of that. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's the virility staff. You mean? It's, it's the Vril staff. That's right. It's a it's a rod which you hold and out of which you shoot power. I'm not making this up. <laughs> uh, oh wow! <laughs> oh yeah. And only, Here, hold my staff for a second. Only men get to carry it. Oh yeah, it's 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 great. But you but you get it's called the the coming race. That title which puns about three different ways. Oh dear but God! You, oh yeah. But, um, but you know, but this is this is a version of it where uh, it's just a little bit more science fictiony, where you know it's undersea, which remains in the 1920s really unexplored, um, and it also has all these physically or geographically or politically marginal locations: Greenland, um, you know, the swamps of southern Louisiana, um, New Zealand. Don't forget New Zealand. Oh, New Zealand, my God! You know how much further away can you get? <laughs> um, and um, and he emphasizes this a few times. Uh, there's even the anthropology of uh, Legrasse is talking to backwoods people, mm-hmm. you know, which is a, a classic Lovecraft theme where he just loves, you know, <laughs> picking the brains and voicing uh, 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 rural folks. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's we don't hold with cops normally, <laughs> hey, but these things being get so bad that we we just had to do something. That Lovecraft never went there, but that is really an accurate de- description of Louisiana. <laughs> 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 to this day, to this day. <clears throat> okay. Well, you you know they had uh, their um, uh, one of their governors got cashiered. Uh, oh, yeah. In the nineties for uh, th- after three trials, including two trials of jury tampering. Um, I mean, he's and my the college where I taught in Louisiana actually paid that guy to give a talk on. Kidding you not. <laughs> Ethics in government. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, there was a story about Henry Kissinger speaking to uh, the the Peace Prize Trust or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the world is, is going upside down. Yeah, irony is dead at that point. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, <laughs> this is that that materialism and uh, that we get of you know. Well, what if we actually have all of these real things? What if we do have these hidden races, these hidden cults, and they're not dreams? They're actually impacting the real world. I mean, I I don't know um, if um, Wayne, if this goes as far as the materialism that that you and I find in in Magadhi, but it's definitely a non-idealist, non-fantasy approach, but a real material one. Absolutely. Matter of fact, uh, uh, one thing that um, this is, has made me think of is uh, um, you, you have these uh, cultists in the stories. Uh, you know, they're making gods of, of these beings that, uh, that they have discovered the existence of. But in no way are these beings like uh, considering themselves as gods and demanding worship, uh, you know, it's like they they couldn't give a damn about about yeah. humanity. Uh, yeah. So they're they're it, 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 that's that's additionally a sort of a uh, materialist slant, sort of uh, uh, snuck in there in the back door. Yes, mm. yes. It also it starts out. Um, it starts out almost like a murder mystery. You know, it's like someone has died in a slightly odd way with this kind of like jostling by sailors. Jostling by a nautical negro. By a nautical negro, <laughs> yeah. That image is amazing. Yeah. And then and then the book Nautical ends. Negroes matter. Yeah. <laughs> no. And then right to the, the end of the book, we it's not like H.P. Lovecraft's thing where it's indescribable and we can't see it. It's like we do really see it. Um, Cthulhu like coming out of this door and we even plunge through him in a boat like everything in the story is so physical and mm-hmm. material yeah it's good it's a good it's a good catch there's a there's a, another connection that I want Paul and um, Marissa to back me up on that I think is awesome but I before we go there I want to read this this half a sentence it's just so awesome i love lovecraft's sentences okay so i'm gonna read the whole sentence but the the best part's near the end johansson thank god did not know quite all did not know quite all even though he saw the city and the thing capital t but (laughs) i shall never sleep calmly again when i think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind in time and space and of those unhallowed blasphemies from elder stars which dream beneath the sea, known and favored by a nightmare cult ready and eager to loose them upon the world whenever another earthquake shall heave their monstrous stone city again to the sun and air. Wow. Yeah. Hot stuff, right? The whole ending is amazing with all these lines. Um, So you picked out a thing, right? Uh, it wasn't. That's not it. Oh, <laughs> I was reading it. I was like, "Jesse's going to love thing. this." Yeah, no, the, 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 it is the thing, and it, I have a thing for things. But um, no, that's not it. It's actually just a few lines down later, and I want to talk to. I want uh, Marissa and Paul to back me up on this because when I read this, it should make, bring something to mind. Okay. And weedy cyclopean masonry. Uh, which can be nothing less than the tangible substance of the Earth's supreme terror, the nightmare corpse city 
of Relier that was built in measureless eons beyond the va- history of vast loathsome shape. Does this remind you of anything? Corpse City Underneath the Sea? Oh, yes, from, from Dick. Everything Dick, right? Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, Dick does this thing where he talks about the tomb world. Right, yeah. Right, yes. Right. It's like a his version of going dark, right? Of, of becoming Lovecraft for a moment. And he, he gets really melancholic. And in there's a great scene in Galactic Pot Healer where, I mean, that whole book is a, is kind of actually this gnaw, this uh, short story, right? It's, it's about a group of uh, cultists who come together who are inspired by a god who drops little notes in their toilet toilet bowls <laughs> <laughs> and then they all assemble on uh the shore of a planet where uh, a sunken cathedral has been uh placed and this god without form or shape which can transmit um uh its communications through telephones and toilet bowls <laughs> and okay. radio transmissions and the Callan's book uh, the calendar uh, and a book that that um, tells you the future and um, everything that, the, in the present and is constantly changing. Um, he he does this thing where he dives down. The main character dives down into the into the sea and sees his own corpse down there, and he calls this the tomb world. And it shows up not just in that story, but in other novels. Mm-hmm. He just uses that phrase, the tomb world. Yep. Yeah, it's yes. in do androids. And- yeah, a few other big ones. Well, it's his, and, it's his vision of entropy, among other things. Yeah. Like but is see, the thing is, is what I'm saying is these two guys are, are receiving the same transmissions, right? <laughs> Lovecraft and Dick are receiving the same transmissions. Um, and I'm not sure that they were reading the same, you know, the reading, uh, I don't think, <laughs> Lovecraft's definitely not reading Dick. But I don't think Dick was reading a lot of Lovecraft. I think that what's happening is that they're on the same wavelength. And the transmissions, not literally, but the transmissions of, about reality and thinking about uh, what all this science stuff means, uh, is these aren't scientists. They're just guys who who get it. And then yeah. they they do this sort of like, what the fuck does that mean for me? Yeah. But I think and that's then they why, go dark. Yeah, I think that's why these stories are so popular. Like, it, like everyone who loves Lovecraft and Dick, like it's like this kind of dark interest in reality and they just speak to that yeah what, what's right. what's lying underneath i mean the, the glimmung is not cthulhu and yet in a way it is it's a it's a elder being that that the that the uh protagonists of galactic pot healer have a connection to yeah as you say almost like a cult as you said jesse that's a nice yeah. that's a nice way of putting it that we didn't i don't think we explicitly no, said we all never that. Talked about I, that before but yeah the the the, the, the cult of the glimmung well, what's so interesting about Glimmung is, a, well, I guess if you're looking at if you're looking at Cthulhu from the cultist point of view, he's not so bad. Uh, but the thing about Glimmung is, is he is he is in this existential dread just as as we are. Yeah, he's right? fighting his negative self. He's fighting his negative self, and when the main character dives down into the ocean and he sees his own corpse, and <laughs> it tries to communicate to him and all, all it can think about is, you know, I, he says, I have a little box I put myself in so the fish don't eat me, right? And that, that box is a, is a coffin. 
I mean, when you come out of the sea and you think about that, that's not going to make you feel so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes you feel bad. But in struggle of of raising this sunken cathedral, right? This um, this project that needs to be done, there is some sort of remuneration or some sort of solace. Um, and when I read a great work of literature, maybe like this story, um, I feel like, oh, yeah, there is some solace. Right? Yeah, the, the, that existential dread and pointlessness and all that stuff is lessened in some way, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't know if that connects to Plush Cthulhu, but I think it kind of does. <laughs> I don't know how it does, it but totally, I feel like it does. You, you need to have, it because this gives you so much dread and despair, that you need something to snuggle up with. Yeah. You, you, I mean, the uh, Glimmung is, is much, is, is kind of like Plush Cthulhu without without um uh without you know ever having been the, the evil terrible monster he's more senile <laughs> yeah he's well, more uh, more, yeah. Yeah, more benign that way yeah it's also about experiencing this kind of dread in the safety of your own home you know they take you to this super dark place and but right. you are safe you're fine you're you know it's you can experience all this horrific stuff that you might not be ready to think about at other times you know, it's all articulated. You're with the writer, and then you can have a cup of coffee, and everything is cool. You can oh, you can escape the tomb good. world. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> that's for, why. For a brief moment, yes. Yeah, if you that's read why... the weird tales, you could flip on to Elliot O'Donnell's uh, Ghost Table, which got the Weird Tales cover for the issue this was published in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Take uh, I I just, I just always picture people reading. <laughs> Your tail's on the bus on the way home. <laughs> I don't know if it works, but I just see a lot of shocked people with, uh, you know, flapper hats on. And <laughs> it's fun to think about. Uh, there is a, somewhere out there, there's a picture of, I believe it's Margaret Brundage reading a copy of Weird Tales. Um, and it's so, uh, it's so exactly... <laughs> it's so exactly what you think. Well, you think because it, you know, it's something I mentioned before in the show. You, you think about how uh, Arkham House gave uh, copyright for uh, some Lovecraft tales to the Pentagon, uh, then the War Department, World War Two, to print right. these, uh, for GIs. I used to have a copy of one of those books. Um, Army Service uh, Edition yeah, see, volumes. Yeah, yeah so really? fit in your pocket, and they have a they yeah. have like a spine is sideways, or it's. Yeah. It's on the it's on the top. Wow. It's it's a, it's a really weird edition. Um, Russell, you've got to find these. They're uh, they're about two and a half inches tall and about six inches across. That's so amazing. The, yeah, and so you have to imagine some poor GI, you know, on the Rhine River, you know, exhausted, bombed to hell. The Nazis are coming, and he's reading, you know, The Outsider. Uh, <laughs> and apparently, this is this is what led to a post-war uh, boom in Lovecraft interest. It's a lot of these GIs came back home and said, "I want more." And so this is what uh, Arkham House got to build build on. Um, yeah, well, there's something about that that dread and that horror that's just so attractive. Like, well, think about it. This magazine um, came out 1920s, right? At least uh, it was that around in 23, right? Um, right after World War One. In actually Germany, there's another there's a volume a, a magazine almost identical to Weird Tales. 
in a lot of respects called The Orchid Garden. It came out in 1919. And it's full of all these dark, sort of scully, weird imagery and, you know, darkness. When you reflect on death for a long time, uh, you've got to reflect on it some more, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, there's a way of working, working, it, working through it. I don't know. There's something uh, comforting about having that skull on your shelf. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Rem- all right. Okay. I got to remember that. Yeah. That what is that? Mentomori. Yeah. I have to say, well, I ha- I've read this a few times, but I'd never heard it uh, read by Wayne June. And that just added yeah. a whole new level of dread to it, which it was great. Really does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So good. Yeah. I, I, I'll, take, I, I I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. That is definitely a compliment. <laughs> I listened really? to the LibriVox. I listened to Wayne's. I listened to the Dark Adventure Radio Theater. I saw the mo- I saw the silent film. I kind of overdosed on Cthulhu this yeah, week. No kidding, huh? <laughs> well, you can't overdose. It's it's homeopathic. <laughs> I, 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 I went looking through my photos to try to find something with cyclopean blocks, and I did find something. I yeah, I, I tweeted it's like. Yeah, this, 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 this arch in the in State State Park looks kind of Lovecraftian. Yeah. Know, has some good weird angles. Uh, every, did everybody listen to the Dark Adventure Radio Theater? Yes. Yeah. Part of it. Part of it? Okay. Yeah, I've not finished it yet either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very good, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, like the film, you know, it, it, it turns it less into a guy reading a bunch of manuscripts and, and, uh, uh, newspaper clippings and turns it into you know more of an ongoing investigation um and i think it's a it's a pretty good adaptation but I, I, there's something about the silent film that i think is um is makes it an even better adaptation it's the same people doing it um but the i think the visualizations of those um cyclopean stones in that city and the and i mean even the the stop motion animation cthulhu um, was pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you hit the head, nail on the head before we talked about the German expressionism, the yeah. the the the, uh, the the the, um, the Nosferatu like look of the of that of that right. film, and yeah. it does play up the uh, the heroism of the of the the pilot of that ship, you know, helmsman driving driving into Cthulhu right resolutely as his. Friend lies gibbering on the floor. <laughs> oh yeah, and yeah. Well, a few weeks ago we watched uh, the uh, classic silent film, uh, "The Man Who Laughs," um, which is oh, that's that's a spooky film. Yeah, that's the origin. Smile of, is spooky. That's the origin of the Joker. Right. And uh, it's, a, it's a, explain it for everybody. If, if it's a nineteenth-century uh, novel, um, and it's about a uh, uh, a guy who. Uh, has his face mutilated so that he's, he's perpetually grinning uh, no matter what happens. Uh, so he ends up growing up to become a, uh, an actor on a traveling uh, you know, show. And he's, uh, he's famous as being a comedian. And so um, and he can never stop smiling. Uh, Conrad Veidt actually played, uh, played this guy who was famous for being Dr. Caligari. And, uh, and it's incredible. If you just Google it, they... Uh, the combination of his what he did with his face and and some yeah. some appliances. There's different accounts of this, um, but apparently, uh, what's his name? Mitch the Joker. Uh, uh, Bob Kane saw this and was like, ah, that's creepy because it, uh, there, there are scenes where the guy is weeping, yeah, terrified, can't stop. And he's got grinning. the biggest smile, biggest oh, smile you've creepy. ever seen. Oh, wow. it, 
Oh, and the very the, it's 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 a it's a fun movie. It's melodrama. Um, yeah, there's a there's a romance romance plot, which is pretty sweet. Um, but the very beginning, the first ten minutes, is where it's really in uh, gothic horror, where you get this um, group of gypsies who uh, make their living by mutilating kids so that they can turn <laughs> into better beggars. That's and, right. Like, oh, it's. It's harsh. I mean, it's it's all uphill from there. It gets it gets nicer from there. But I was, I was <laughs> so I mean, you're thinking about what you can do with silent film and horror. Um, you know, obviously, you guys mentioned the Nosferatu and uh, looking at the makeup in the film. I was thinking of Cal, uh, Caligari. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's 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 very nice. And then my daughter, who is extremely skeptical of everything. Um, She's basically Wednesday, Adam. She's a teenager, though, right? No, no, she's old, man. She's twenty-one. Um, oh wow! Yeah, Still, I know, I know. But she, uh, she noted that the first time someone says Kofuhu, it's uh, the first. It's one of the few. T- it's one of the first times where you don't get a voice card. Yeah, yeah, it's great, yeah. right? It's, great. Un- it's, so it's unmentionable. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that in the Dark Adventure Radio Theater uh, radio play where they keep. Keep people says, from saying don't it. Don't bother pronouncing it. Oh, right? oh or they yeah. stop you because they don't say it. It's like oh know. wow, like Voldemort. Yeah, like Voldemort, exactly. That's right. I, in, in fact, Castro says that um, to uh, one of the characters. He says, um, "Don't say it." <laughs> like <laughs> even he's kind of like, "No, no, no, no. You don't want to say that. You don't want to. You don't know what you're doing." Um, uh, that's, there's something fun there. Names have power. Indeed. They always do. That's the only thing that uh, Adam and Eve do in Genesis that's of any use is they name the animals. Um, other than that, they're, they're slackers. They're, they're good Lovecraft characters in the beginning. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. Uh, I, I keep bringing it back to Jordan Peterson because I was reading, uh, listening to a lot of his podcasts and stuff. Um, you got, if you haven't checked that out yet, Brian, you got to do that. It's really amazing. What's the name uh, of the podcast? Uh, so he's got his own – he started one, I think, because he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, and I've never heard uh, – like Joe Rogan, I, I think he's he's really cool. He's he's like uh, – I was thinking I made a list of like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen of today. You know, uh, there's uh, you know the guy – the Tesla guy, right? Not Tesla himself, but uh, what's his name? Makes the cars. Elon Musk. Oh, Elon. Elon Musk. So you got Elon Musk. You got like Alan Moore. You, you know, you got a bunch of great uh, people who are visionaries in their field. Joe Rogan. He's like a. He's a. He's a. Sort of crazy, weird character because he's he's like on Fear Factor or something, which I never watched. Um, and then he had a terrible show on Sci Fi, which I watched the first episode of. Um, but he's just really curious, and yet his his main thing was he was like a fight guy, like a U- UFC or a MMA sort of guy. Huh. And so he does interview very long form three hour interviews with just all sorts of interesting people, and a lot of the episodes are, um, you know, like he's had Dan Carlin on. By the way, good choice. Yeah, but um, <laughs> um, he had Dan Carlin on. He's had you know uh, Sam Harris and a whole bunch of really you know sort of thoughtful intellectual people but he also has fighters on but then he had this guy named jordan peterson on and jordan peterson he he does this amazing thing joe rogan becomes silent for almost three hours yeah that was crazy i've never heard that isn't that weird like if you if you listen to joe rogan normally he's like he's talking about bigfoot he's he's a motor mouth right 
um, which is great. But, you, you know, you hear the same story. This one, he becomes almost completely yeah. silent. I felt that, too, when I was listening to it. I was just like, what am I hearing? This is kind of like mind-blowing Yeah, if you don't normally listen to him, you won't notice that. But it, he, he doesn't require a lot of work to bring out anything out of Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. But um, Jordan Peterson, in that that show, he talks about a lot of interesting things that just, you know, are modern and uh, he nails things in ways that I, uh, I hadn't been able to th- figure out m- for myself before. Exactly. Um, and then um, in his podcast, he starts talking about uh, the Bible, uh, the first, you know, three books of the Bible. And uh, uh, like his interpretation of it is like, wow, that's really amazing. And that's what kind of um, – I lost my my original point, <laughs> but you got to check it out, Brian. If you haven't heard that yet, um, everybody, you should check check it out because he's doing he's doing some uh, amazing work, and I'm not sure. Like, I'm still thinking oh, he's kind of conservative, but then I think, well, that's stupid. Why do I even care about <laughs> whether he's conservative or not? <laughs> because the left right thing is is uh, it's a mistake. They're both ideolo- ideologies, right? Uh, or well, correct, <laughs> and um, uh, and that's uh, it's just refreshing. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know how I was going to connect it up, uh, other than to say he does talk about. Um, uh, oh yeah, it is. He talks about how um, in the very first thing uh, Adam does after he gains his consciousness mm-hmm. um is he hides he hides from god mm-hmm. in like bush mm-hmm. because he's ashamed yes yeah and and it's like what yeah that's kind of a weird thing to put in the story well right? that's the, mm-hmm. the you know reading backwards into it this is where christianity gets the uh, uh sexualities as the root of, of evil because he's ashamed of his nakedness and that's, right. that's the first right. thing and it makes him stupid because he's like oh, i'll hide from god yeah, good, right, good luck, right, right, right. You know, the, um, I'll hide from the all-seeing eye, and they get that weird part of God walking through the you know, garden looking for them. Um, now, there's uh, Samuel Delaney did a great parody of this. It's in his fantasy series, the Neveryona sequence, where he has uh, a feminist separatist um, lesbian <laughs> mercenary company, uh, and they have a version of it where they talk about how uh, goddess creates um, woman. And um, first, and um, is at one point so mad with woman that uh, the goddess flays the woman so that she's mutilated. Um, And this is where male genitalia comes from. And this is so disappointing to the goddess that the goddess thinks this is a terrible thing, that she reduces the name to man. Ah. So man (laughs) is is a truncated, cut off, emasculated name of woman. Ah. It's like a 30-page story. It's just yeah, it's a it's in one of the Neveryona books, which are all fascinating. I mean, it's Delaney, you know, he's, he's one of the greats. Mm-hmm. So back to Kolfuhu. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, we can just go through the story endlessly because there's just so much, so much good stuff in it. Um, I was, uh, you know, wanted to know. Uh, I shared some stuff online. I did a word cloud for you guys and put this up. Oh, you did. Yeah. Um, my Mac was having problems with some of the word cloud generators, so the one that's there is, you know. Um, but I just wanted to uh, go back to the final paragraph because this is something, this is, again, if we're talking about the, the ultimate Lovecraft story, 
this is it. We don't end with, um, oh, we defeated the monster and things are okay. Or, um, you know, like dreams of the witch house, you know, I left, you know, that's okay. End of story. Um, instead, this is the, this is like mountains of madness, uh, where things are going to get worse. His ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle capped monoliths in lonely places. He must have been trapped by the sinking waltz within his black abyss, or else the world would by now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsomeness waits and dreams the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think. Let me pray that if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors, good pun, may put caution before audacity and see that it meets no other eye. <laughs> so good. Wow. I mean, I just all love that, again, that, that negativity of Lovecraft. Um, decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. You know, yeah. you know that's, what is he talking about? I mean, is this just his his fear of modernity, his fear of race and immigration, or is it, you know, or is he saying the cultists beginning to suborn everybody with nautical negroid, you know, you know, callously murdering people? Um, or is it just that Philip K. Dick, that return to chaos? Yeah. Yeah. yeah progress is not going to happen, guys. It's going the other way. Yeah. Uh, things will just break down. And... <laughs> yeah, life, life is the only, is the only <clears throat> antidote to, to that entropy, right? And yet, life is determined to die as well. It, it can't hold itself. It has to keep, keep redoing, keep re- regenerating in, in new versions. It can't just stay as it is. There's um, uh, so many great quotes in here. I want to read this one from near the end. Slowly, amidst the distorted horrors of that indescribable scene, she, be- she, the ship, began to churn the lethal waters, whilst on the masonry of that charnel shore that was not of earth, the Titan thing, capital T, from the stars slavered and gibbered like Polyphemy, cursing the fleeing ship of Odysseus, then bolder than that, the, uh, bolder than the storied Cyclops, Great Cthulhu slid greasily into the water <laughs> and began to pursue with vast wave-raising strokes of cosmic potency. <laughs> Raiden looking back and went mad, laughing shrilly as he kept on laughing at intervals till death found him one night. <laughs> one night in the cabin whilst Johansson was wandering delirious. I love it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Cosmic strokes of cosmic potency. He's 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 a cosmically potent swimmer. And and, and digging back right into Greek myth, and again, when we talk about him making his own myth, here he is taking the myth of uh, Polyphemus, the uh, the Cyclops, and Odysseus, and and Odysseus Odysseus wins, just like just like Johansson wins here. But although Johansson's victory is much more short lived than. Oh, this no, and he goes back to his, he goes back to his wife. This, this is this is the smart thing that Johansson does. This is consistent with the story. Is because Odysseus in, in in the Odyssey makes a terrible mistake because when he tells you know, Cyclops says who are you earlier in the story he says I am Uthis I am nobody which is very smart. But as Odysseus is sailing away, he, you know the uh, blinded Polyphemus yells who did this to me and Odysseus says Ah oh, it was I Odysseus of Ithaca sacker of right. cities. 
here's my Facebook URL, you know, <laughs> and, and then, and then the giant says, Oh, now I've got your name. Let me curse you. I'm going to tell my dad. Yep. I'm going to tell my dad and my dad's going to be pissed. And well, he was so mad. So, so Johansson though is, is delirious. Johansson, he like the opening paragraph of the story. Johansson doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he stopped his learning, you know, very, very smart guy. But then, but then, it's great Cthulhu slid greasily. <laughs> nice, nice little alliteration there too. That's great. There's a, there's a, um, uh, another connection there to the sirens um, and the siren call of Cthulhu, right? Um, I cannot attempt to transcribe it verbatim in all its cloudless, uh, sorry, cloudiness and redundance, but I will tell the gist of an, enough to show why the sound of the water against the vessel's side became so unendurable to me that I stopped my ears with cotton. Yep. Uh, yep. So he... It, it, yeah. It's the, the splashing of Cthulhu's uh, forefins or whatever into the water, slapping the sides of the ship. And, oh, man. Well, there we get Odysseus listening to the sirens. Exactly. And then he can endure it and not go insane. Yeah. Not become one of the gibbering gibbering cultists who well this is this is fascinating i mean this is really this anti-progress narrative I and mean, marissa you really nailed this this is a uh, the sense of um you know the best we can hope for is not to progress so you know uh johansson has to you know or sorry our narrator has to stop his ears um because it's better not to know mm. so as we go into the 20th century our best bet is to hide from it wow we're right back mm. to your pessimism Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> that's where i live <laughs> I love how happy you sound when you say that too. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Anybody else got any nice choice quotes from this this before? Well, I, this wouldn't be considered a quote, but uh, I took the latitude and longitude from the oh, yeah. the story and I put it into Google Maps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they didn't have a street view, unfortunately. But, <laughs> uh, it would make you go mad. They did have a satellite shot of it, and uh, that's all I got. Okay. I tweeted this morning. I I tweeted the ad the address on my phone, and I, uh, there was no uh, way to get there by bus, so I was asking for a carpool, so we all can go mad together again. That's right. So did it t- tell you how long it would take you to get from? Uh, Whatever remote part of Canada you're in, to to I'm on the coast, so it shouldn't take that long. But um, uh, Marissa's a little closer, so maybe I'll I'll drive down there and we can take a, a sailing boat together. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Meet up on the west coast. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Is who, who's never met before on this podcast? I don't think I've met Jim Moon or Brian. Really? Have we met? I can't remember. I don't think so. Well, you're new to me, Marissa. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I need to know. I'm, I'm stalking you guys now on Twitter. <laughs> Marissa, can I ask you a question? Yes, you may. <laughs> in, your, in your editorial role, um, who among living authors is closest to this vision of Lovecraft? 
Oof. Or China maybe or Hmm. You know, I think I think I get the best feeling. Oh, I don't know actually. I really like Jeff Vandermeer's stuff as well. Like sometimes I get that. Oh, yeah, that's that. Yeah. yeah. I'd say like yeah, Mavel or Vandermeer maybe. Thank you. Uh, uh, Tim Powers is still alive, right? Oh yeah, I haven't read much of his stuff actually, but he is really high on my list to get to. He does have um, the uh, the Arabian vision of the story, the uh, city in the sands, that appears in one of his recent novels. Right. Oh yeah, declare. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Thanks. Yeah. Hmm. I I I don't know. I I think you all should listen to that Jordan Peterson thing. Do, do I have the <laughs> I, right link? Yeah, it looks right. Um, mm-hmm. That's his. That's his podcast. Um, and I've only heard the first. I, I was talking. I told my friend Steen. I, I don't know if everybody knows who he is. He he runs the. Uh, I don't know the, the guts of my website and stuff. Um, he's the programmer, a friend of mine. We played uh, Battlefield Four together. He's been on the podcast uh, with Brian. Um, yes. And uh, on Jenny's podcast. Anyways, um. Uh, I was telling him about that Jordan Peterson thing. I'm like a little bit shy about it because because he's got a lot of religion in there, and you know he's not religious, and I'm not religious. But I thought he he might think, oh, I'm going crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm turning into one of them. And then uh, um, the uh, the thing is is uh, he started listening, and I'm like uh, he he starts starts telling me about uh, posts, uh, not posts, little bits of what he's hearing. I'm like, that sounds right, but uh, I don't remember that. <laughs> it turns out he was listening to the podcast, Jordan Peterson's podcast, oh. and not that Joe Rogan interview. Um, yeah, because I had that um, book because you tweeted it. I had yeah. it. I was like, oh, when am I going to get to like three hours of something? Like, you know, I had it like on my list, and I just started. Right. I just started to be like, I'm just going to see what kind of stuff it is, and I was so hooked. Listen it's to the really whole good, three right? hours. Talk to everyone I bumped into about it. It's weird, right? <laughs> yeah, started it's, like looking up his podcast and his books. Like I'm like, who yeah. is this guy? Um, and then Steen yesterday sent me a um, a video, YouTube video. Probably like somebody a little bit too enthusiastic to put it up, but it was. Uh, I think it was like um, Jordan Peterson uh, gets yelled at by SJWs. And I only learned about SJWs recently, I guess, like in the summer or something. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing is, is it was it was like, oh, my God, this is a thing. He's not lying. <laughs> There's yeah. these crazy people who running around demanding. And I, I was saying, oh, that's just teenagers, you know. People are really enthusiastic in, you know, first year university. And no, it's, that's the, just, it's the return to that new dark age. It, it it's so it's what's so amazing is that it is it's it's like um it if you what's so weird is Peterson seems to be sort of conservative but not in the Republican you know like fiscally conservative he just thinks maybe we shouldn't go wild because if we go wild uh, you get um, the gulag <laughs> you get right. Um, you get fascism and you get, uh, you know, the the terror of of Nazism. Yeah, um, he's just into that more reasoned view, like whatever your politics, like to have like a reasoned view instead of just wildly ideological. Yeah, like choosing you have a team. To, you're on the sports team. You've got to like go crazy. You have to call me what I want to be called, 
And I, like, I'm fine with that. Like, somebody wants to be called a professor and they're not a professor. That's fine. <laughs> Can you please? They want to be called John and they're not. Their name's not really John. Can you please call uh, me Marissa? Of course, sure. Marissa, Marissa from now on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I call you. Mr. Jim Moon, Mr. Jim Moon all the time because I love the way he does that <laughs> on his podcast. He's Mr. <laughs> Jim Moon forever, right? Um, and that's that's awesome. Uh, I used to think, oh, I'd rather be a doctor, you know, doctor uh, at the front. But actually, there's something resonant about Mr. It's okay right? to be a doctor. It, it can be satisfying. Uh, are you a doctor? I am. Uh, Dr. <laughs> uh, Brian. But see, you don't go around saying, please call me Dr. Brian. No, a lot of my students called me Doc. And that was – Yeah. Um, but uh, – and my one of my typical online handles is Dr. Nemo. Uh, Dr. <laughs> But you know, it's it's um, but it's also it's a regional thing. I, mean, I don't hear Canadians saying "doctor" as a as a title very often. No, no, I don't think so. I think it sounds much more American. And in the U.S., it's mostly in the South. Yeah, um, there's sort of a lot uh, a lot of characters. The character, there's a structure. Maybe there's structure there. Well, speaking of structure, I need to get uh, structuring my family's lunch before they <laughs> decide to gibber and go after me like you know some cultists. Uh, it's fantastic meeting you guys and fantastic. Yeah, yeah you nice too. Meeting you too. I have a. I did a drawing a long time ago of a of a Cthulhu cultist um, uh, on a lunch break, and he's he's got the knife raised high above his head. He's, you know, one of those curved knives. And on the altar is like a, a sandwich. Su- su- sandwich. <laughs> 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 I above it said he's raising. Bring it down. Cut his sandwich in half. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a YouTube channel you guys might like. It's called Vegan Death Metal Chef. <laughs> it's a it's a guy who's dressed as a death metal musician and he's telling you how to cook things uh, for a vegan menu. Oh, like, that sounds great. You must you must use Earth Balance. It is one with the earth. And all his all his like <laughs> like his butter knife is this, you know, multi bladed gothic killing thing, you know. Yeah, it's it's vegan death metal chef. It's pretty cute. <laughs> Does he have any uh, particular preference of wh- how you address him or No, I I don't know. <laughs> okay. I have to find out. Call me chef. Yeah. <laughs> sir. Chef. chef. Um, well, until next time, we'll see you guys later. Yeah, yeah. great to meet you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye.